imagine a man who was a civil engineer, a sheriff's deputy, an assistant prison warden, a doctor of applied psychology, a hospital orderly, a lawyer, a child care expert, a Benedict monk, a Trappist monk, a cancer researcher, a teacher, a military ship doctor, and surgeon. And he acquired all these positions without any actual formal training. He was a man known as the Great Impostor. Today I have the story of Ferdinand Waldo de Mera on the 183rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I hope everybody is doing just fantastic out there. Well, the weather here in Chicagoland has been oh, pretty decent lately, warm and dry. Some days are a little bit too warm, but I'm not going to complain. And who's going to listen, am I right, folks? So I originally began writing a story on a lady in colonial America named Sarah Worth. She pretended to be the sister of Queen Charlotte. I wrote about a page before I found out that everything I was writing was most likely apocryphal. Even though it was presented as fact everywhere I looked, even some pretty reputable sites. Anyway, I decided to put that story in hold till I found out some actual facts. So I found another imposter, one of the greatest, nicknamed the Great Imposter, and I decided to do his story. But before I get started, I'd like to thank Russell and Gary, who both gave me some great story ideas this week. For all the rest of you out there, why don't you be like Russell and Gary and send me some story ideas? They're always needed. But because the story's sort of long, let's get right to it. The story of a man who went by many names. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Tony Curtis is the great imposter. The true story of the world's greatest hoaxer. One day, he's putting down a riot in the guise of a prison warden. And the next day, he's on the deck of a battleship impersonating the ship's surgeon always managing to stay one step ahead of the authorities. Are you Martin Goddard? Yes, I am. And your real name is Ferdinand Waldo Damara Jr., alias Dr. Monet, alias Brother Joseph uh-huh. Jerome. The true story of Ferdinand Waldo Damara Jr., the man of a thousand careers, a man who had a compulsive desire to put the world on. And boy, did he ever. Sometime around late 1951, a 30-year-old large man with a crew cut looking sort of like a football player who lived in Massachusetts, received a letter from a 19-year-old mother in Detroit. She asked him to perform a lung operation on her infant daughter. She wrote, My husband and I both feel you are a godsend. He had become a recluse over the last few years, after being asked to leave Canada. He wasn't a doctor and had no formal education in the medical field. The woman who wrote the letter most likely was aware of that. The man's name was Ferdinand, Fred to his friends, and he often received letters such as this. 
He was once offered to be a doctor for a British Columbia lumber camp, no questions asked. Like I said, he wasn't a doctor, but acted as one during the Korean War. Ferdinand was known as the Great Impostor. Ferdinand Waldo de Mera was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts on December 21, 1921, to a financially well-off family. They lived in a large Victorian home complete with servants. The money came from a series of movie theaters in the area that the family owned. And even though the family was rich, Fred went to a public school because his parents didn't want him spoiled or pampered. But at school, Fred felt out of place due to the fact that the rest of the children were from families who worked at the local mill, most of them poor. An incident happened at the school in which the other kids were going to beat him up due to the fact they felt he had gotten another schoolboy into trouble. Fred pulled a gun and said, I'm going to shoot your guts out. The school officials found two handguns in his bag, and after that he became a hero to the other kids. He said, I remember it felt so good to be one of the guys. I never felt like I belonged anywhere. It took him from being one of the most well-behaved kids in school to being one of the worst. He felt like the only way to be accepted was to do something bad. And things went well for a while, but eventually his parents moved him to a private Catholic school, something he wasn't happy about, and for a long time he refused to talk to anyone. He would just go through the days silently. Then one day, a nun came up to him and wrapped her black-knit cloak around him, and he suddenly began to cry. He said he was overcome with a feeling that he couldn't explain. He said, I don't know, but I decided right there that I had some special sacred mission, and I made up my mind to become a very devout boy. He would become the most loyal, hardest-working altar boy at St. Augustine's Roman Catholic Church. When he was eleven years old, his world changed. His father told him the shocking news that the family had gone broke. They were forced to sell the home and move away to the poor section of the city. In his early teens, he played football at Central Catholic High School, but he never made the starting lineup. It might be that ever since he was a child, when he played games, he had to be the one in charge. And this might be why he never took the coach's orders seriously. He also never studied very hard, but he was a great entertaining talker, who could charm anyone. He stayed with the family until he was 16 years old, and that's when he decided he had enough. He ran away from home. Fred joined the Cistercians monks at Valley Falls, Rhode Island. This lasted only about a year when the abbot of the monastery convinced him that he wasn't suited for the life of contemplation. He would be better off teaching, so he transferred to the Brothers of Charity, which is a religious institution in the service of the people most in need in the field of education and health care. But after a heated argument with the head brother of charity, Damara stole a station wagon and went on a joy ride. He never came back. In 1941, he joined the United States Army, but for some reason, this didn't last long. He took the identity of an army friend named Anthony Ignolia and went to AWOL. He attempted to join other religious orders like the Abbey of Our Lady Jetsunami in Kentucky. It was soon discovered that Ignolia wasn't his true identity when he ran into an old friend from Rhode Island. He ended up back at home where his father attempted to talk him into turning himself in as a deserter from the army. But instead, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the AWOL army man decided to join the Navy. The Navy assigned him to the USS Ellis, a destroyer on the North Atlantic Patrol. 
and then after to a hospital school at Norfolk, Virginia. When he learned that he was to be assigned to an amphibious invasion force that was going to be part of a dangerous beach landing, he knew he had to do something. He attempted to get into the officer's cadet school. He did so by applying with fake credentials. He said he had graduated from Iowa State University and even forged a letter from Senator Caper of Kansas praising his character. Unfortunately for Demera, the Navy soon caught on and he thought it was best to leave. He left the Navy by leaving a fake suicide note near the water's edge as he skipped out in the middle of the night. The following day, he reinvented himself as Dr. Robert Linton French, a psychologist who graduated from the University of Michigan. Dr. French was a recently decommissioned naval officer who was seeking to convert to Catholicism. He joined the new Subiaco Abbey in Arkansas. But the folks at the Abbey released him within a few weeks after they learned that Dr. French was a fraud. And although he denied it, he decided it was time to move on. Soon, Dr. French was at the clerics of St. Viador in Chicago, and while there, he studied philosophy and ethics at DePaul University. Demera found himself in a bit of a dilemma. He was preparing for ordination as a Victorian priest, while at the same time living a lie. There is nothing I would have liked more, he said. I thought at the time I had true religious vocation, but I couldn't go ahead without telling those men the truth about myself, so I disappeared. No explanations, I just disappeared. When things didn't work out there, he traveled north and joined the Order of St. Camellius in Milwaukee. Again, things didn't go well. He was assigned as a cook, but when the priest complained about his food, he threw a tantrum and left. This became a pattern as Dr. French was in Erie, Pennsylvania, Los Angeles, and then Washington. Somewhere along the way, he even published a well-received booklet called How to Bring Up Your Child. It was in Washington where he decided to settle permanently and become a teacher of philosophy at St. Martin's College. When asked later if he felt guilty about teaching to college students, he said, Why? I just kept ahead of the class. The best way to learn anything is to teach it. All was going well in Washington. Damara had settled into a new life and even became a special deputy to the sheriff, enforcing the law around the college campus. One day, two strangers walked up to him, and one said, Hello, Ferdinand. Damara knew his time as Dr. French was over. These two men were from the FBI. They arrested Damara as a deserter from the Navy. The maximum sentence for deserting the Navy during a time of war was the death penalty. He attempted to be his own defense, but it was hopeless, so he threw himself on the mercy of the court. He received a six-year sentence in the U.S. disciplinary barracks in San Pedro, California. Due to good behavior, he only served 18 months before he was released. Back at home, he contemplated about his life and what to do next. You might think that a year and a half in prison might have learned him something, but not so. He looked through a collection of college catalogs and decided to take on the personality of Dr. Cecil Hammond, a biologist from Asbury College in Kentucky. The real Dr. Hammond has a master's and doctor's degree from Purdue. Demera never let on just how he was able to acquire the personal records of Hammond's background from colleges and universities, but he wasn't beyond bragging about his ability to do so. Believe it or not, he said, if you give me ten days, I can produce a complete transcript of anybody's college records. 
and if you think that's easy to do, just try it someday. He used the identity of Dr. Hammond to enroll in law school, but after a year he quit, just gaining enough information about procedures and criminal law to be a convincing lawyer. He used what he had learned to help the Brothers of Christian Instruction, a French teaching school order in Alfred, Maine. Because of the current troubles at the school, the highly qualified Dr. Cecil B. Hammond was received with joy. He took on the religious name Brother John and told stories of made-up adventures to the other brothers about being in India, Japan, and Tibet. He even helped the seminary obtain a college charter to become an American college. This helped many young men of the order obtain credits to qualify as teachers. It was while he was in Canada studying theology for the teaching order that he met a young doctor, Joseph C. Sire. Demera, as Brother John, had been saying that he was a physician before joining the order. Dr. Sire started to turn to Demera for advice. He was impressed with Demera when he was looking for a way to treat arthritis. Demera suggested bee venom, something he had just read about in a medical journal. It worked like a charm, and the young Dr. Sire's respect for Brother John grew enormously. At this point, Dr. Sire made a, a bit of a mistake. You see, he wanted an American medical license to go along with his Canadian one. So he gave Demera all his credentials, so when Demera returned to the States, he could get him that American medical license. But that never happened, because once he was back at the Brothers of Christian Instruction in Maine, he became angry with the institution. They had put somebody else in charge, a job that he thought he should have. So he decided it was time to leave. With Dr. Sire's credentials, he stole the car and drove away. He took the car to Boston, abandoning it, to get on a bus to New Brunswick, back to Canada, because it was there where Dr. Sire was licensed to practice medicine. He walked right into a Canadian naval recruiting office and enlisted as a naval surgeon as Dr. Sire. I told them, he said, that if they didn't take me in a hurry, I'd join the Canadian Army. They did take him quickly without even bothering to take his fingerprints. In a process that usually lasts ten weeks, he got through in a single day, all the red tape being pushed aside. In the spring of 1951, he began working in the sick bay at the naval base in Halifax. Up to that point, he avoided getting involved with women. I'm a phony, he said, and you can't be a phony and really fall in love. But this time in Canada, I couldn't help it. He met a girl, and the two quickly planned to get married. They planned to tie the knot in June and settle down in Canada as soon as his time in the Navy had ended. But it didn't work out. By the time June came around, he was on the destroyer Kahuga, sailing to Korea. It was on the Kahuga that he faced his biggest challenge as an imposter. It began with the captain having a bad tooth, and Demera was required to deal with it. So the night before, Demera quickly read up on dentistry, and the next day, he pulled the tooth without any trouble. But a more serious situation happened when three wounded Korean soldiers were brought on board the ship, one with a bullet embedded close to his heart. The man was carried into the captain's cabin and laid out for an emergency operation. A very nervous Demera, with everybody watching, had to perform surgery. Now, it was bad enough that the seriously wounded man was having a pretend doctor do his operation, but also the conditions were far from ideal. There was no autoclave to sterilize the room or the limited equipment. 
But Demera kept his cool and acted swiftly, which gave the appearance to all those watching that he had done this before. He cut into the chest just above the heart. I had one principle in mind, he said. The less cutting to do, the less patching up you have to do afterwards. He found the bullet within an inch from the heart. I was afraid he'd hemorrhage when I took out the bullet, he continued, but he didn't. I pulled out the bullet and slipped some gel foam, a coagulating agent, into the wound and clotted almost immediately. As he sewed up the incision, he received a small cheer from the captivated onlookers. Soon he was giving the man an injection of penicillin. Then he relaxed, knowing he had saved the soldier's life. Once arriving in Korea, he saw that their medical conditions were horrible and there was very little medical expertise. So with the permission of the captain, Demera began volunteering. He quickly became known for his charity, performing many operations and amputations. Even a local commander personally praised him for his work. The end came when one of the officers, Lieutenant R.A.V. Jenkins, who was a public information officer on the Cahuga, prepared a story on Dr. Sire. I couldn't talk Jenkins out of it, Demira said, but I knew a story in the paper would finish me. He said he did his best to downplay the situation. But the story did make the papers, all the way up to the real Dr. Sire. One day Demera was called into the captain's cabin where he was read a message that read, We have information that Dr. C. Sire, Surgeon Lieutenant 017669 is an imposter. Removed from active duty immediately. Repeat, immediately. Conduct investigation and report facts to Chief of Naval Staff, Ottawa. At first, the commander couldn't believe it. He thought there had to be some mistake, so he let Demera carry on while he straightened things out. But there was no mistake, and within a few days, Demera was ordered to return to Canada. The commander said later, He had a warm, sympathetic regard to the officers and men on the ship, and a high perception of the human character. As a layman, I cannot judge, but to my knowledge, he performed his duties with considerable skill. As he traveled back to Canada, he felt he was going to prison. He thought of the girl he was planning to marry, and how now he could never face her. Just thinking about all this almost killed him. But to his surprise, the Canadian authorities pressed no charges. They assumed he was an actual doctor who just used a false name. When his fingerprints were sent to Washington, his true identity, Ferdinand W. DeMaro, was discovered. He was then politely asked to leave the country, although he was given his full pay. He was met with U.S. immigration officers in Blaine, Washington. One of them shook his hand. They carried a car that had the names Robert L. French, Cecil B. Hammond, Joseph C. Sire, and Ferdinand W. DeMara written on it. In other words, the United States authorities knew all about the little game he had been playing. But he faced no charges and was free to go, so he flew to Chicago. I guess I did a little drinking, he said. I couldn't get that girl out of my head, and I kept thinking about how happy I was in the Canadian Navy. I guess I was happier there than I had been anywhere in my life. If only that story hadn't gotten into the newspapers, everything would have been all right. Demera and the girl, whose name is unavailable, were never married. In 1952, he sold his whole story to Life magazine, an article that much of today's episode was based on. The article, however, would really hamper his future exploits. In Houston in 1955, Fred resurfaced as Dr. Benjamin Jones, a professor from Mississippi. 
he applied to join the Texas Department of Corrections by writing all the character references himself. He did the job so well he was made deputy warden of a new prison called Shamrock, designed to separate out the most violent inmates from the rest of the population. This came to an end when one of the prisoners recognized him from the Life magazine article. Although he denied it, he fled the scene as fast as he could. In the summer of 1956, he got a job as a teacher named Martin Goddard on North Haven Island in Maine. But again, because of the Life magazine article, he was discovered. He was caught and a judge gave him two months probation for not having a legitimate teacher's license. But he did capitalize on his story. On November 5, 1959, Damara appeared on the surrealistic game show hosted by Ernie Kovacs called Take a Good Look. The object was for one of the three celebrity panelists to guess his identity. One week later, on November 12, 1959, he appeared on an episode of the TV quiz show You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. Damara recounted his exploits and joked that the $1,000 he earned on the program was going to be donated to the Feed and Clothe Fred Damara Fund. He never gave up using aliases, but as a result of his self-generated publicity, it became harder and harder to accomplish impersonations. Also in 1959, writer Robert Crichton wrote a biography of him called The Great Impostor, which later was made into a fictionalized film starring Tony Curtis, who played Damara. In 1960, Damara was given a small acting role in the horror film The Hypnotic Eye. In later life, he was able to get a job as a chaplain at the Good Samaritan Hospital of Orange County in Anaheim, California. By then, he had graduated from the Malnorma School of the Bible in Portland, Oregon. Even so, when his exploits were discovered in the late 1970s, he was almost fired. In 1980, he was forced to stop working because of ill health, but was permitted to live at the hospital. And that's where he died, June 7, 1982, at the age of 60, due to heart failure and complications from his diabetic condition. Outside of being a phony professor, what were some of your other impersonations? Oh, I've been a surgeon lieutenant in the Royal Canadian Navy. You operated on people? Mm hmm. <laughs> Isn't that rather dangerous? Well, you might say that. Mm -hmm. Where did you steal your new credentials, sir? I mean, to be a surgeon? Uh, I don't seem to be getting through to you. I acquire these no. things. I know, you keep telling me that. How did you set yourself up as a surgeon on a, on a warship? Uh, actually, I acquired these credentials, obtained a commission, uh -huh. and uh, was sent to Korea as such. How long did you last as a Navy doctor? About Until a year. What happened? The first guy came in with chicken pox and you sent him up to the crow's nest, I suppose. <laughs> Did you operate on anybody? Oh, yes. Korean Nationals, a uh, great number of operations. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. The thing about Demera was, I didn't touch on his amazing intelligence. He must have been a very smart guy. I mean, he had the ability to read a medical book and not only remembered what he had read, but he understood it as well. According to Wikipedia, Damara was said to possess a true photographic memory and was widely reputed to have an extraordinary IQ. I believe it. He also had that strange ability of making people like him. But his biggest fault, obviously, besides being a complete liar, was that he was too lazy to do things the right way. Think of what he might have been if he did things the way it should have been done, 
got the proper degree and stuff like that. But for some reason, he had this thing against formal education. So he spent his whole life trying to cut corners and it always seemed to backfire on him. But anyway, how about the ending credits? You know, these podcasts on the Psycon Network cost money. They really do. Server space alone is expensive, and that's only one of many costs. We could use your help. Be one of the good people and support us by visiting Psycon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M. And look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find so many amazing podcasts. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review or a few stars or something. Those really help. And remember, all the links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 35 years for being my wife of 35 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much, and of course, a shout out to all those that repost this. You folks have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with something, but right now I gotta go walk the dog. Bye. Coffee.
Yeah.